everyone, and welcome back to the Voice of Veritas podcast, delivering truth and information. I'm Shiloh Thomas from Veritas Alta, delivering unified data management, and I'm excited for today's session. If you caught our last session, we talked about some of the chaos of working across and scaling within the cloud, and how most importantly, a proactive defense is really your best bet against the inevitable. So today we're building off that and tackling security, securing your applications and information. And with me today, I'm joined by Christopher Winter from Veritas's product management. Chris has been working with us for about 14 years, and in that time, he's primarily focused on net backup and has served in various technical roles between support, business critical services, and now product management, he's used several different perspectives to not only educate stakeholders, but to help them solve real challenges and their problems and improve areas of the product. Welcome, Chris, to the Voice of Veritas. Thank you for having me, Shiloh. It's great to be here. Now, I have to say, I don't think I've met anyone more colorful than you. You are a master of analogies and metaphors. And for those who are listening here today, I have no idea how many of those you'll hear, but I know that by the end of today's chat, you'll have some great stories and by far a solid understanding of one of tech's most challenging topics, securing your organization. So what do you say, Chris? Are you ready to jump right in? Oh, I love jumping right in. That's the great, <laughs> wonderful plan. <laughs> All right. So I thought we should start by talking about the ever-changing regulatory and compliance landscape. So when we think about regulatory compliance, you've got GDPR, DORA, and there's even some recent cybersecurity updates that have come out of the U.S. federal government. So when you take that and combine it with the exponential increase we've seen in attacks, many organizations, as you can imagine, are pretty much in the dark. They're trying to figure out how to keep pace with these changes while implementing the right measures that would ultimately protect the organization. So just catching up on some predictions, actually yesterday, um, looking at predictions for the next year, and what I found one um, was very interesting, where organizations are expected to increase their cybersecurity spend, get this, by $1.75 trillion. Ooh. But before we go crazy on spending, um, I, I think that organizations really need to understand the situation and what these regulations mean. They are just a baseline though, right? That's a wonderful place to start. Regulations give you an idea of what the government and your oversight bodies want you to protect, but you as a business know that you need more than that kind of data to get your business up and running after any kind of disaster. Regulations tell you what is critical, but everyone knows that there's a there's a deeper, deeper nature to your data and your applications that keep the gears turning. And what type of technology and strategies should IT organizations consider then? So if we think about these regulations as sort of baseline, and they really need to understand the situation and, and how to apply it so that they can ultimately adapt and reduce their exposure, the risk exposure. But what would you recommend? I mean, there's a whole host of technologies out there. So how do we make the right decision? What are, what are some of the things that they really need to consider? I think that some of the key areas of technology to focus on would be this idea of zero trust, which is a framework and a methodology versus a particular off-the-shelf technology that you could buy. But also this idea of an isolated recovery environment, some kind of air gap solution. 
And I just want to point out, since you said isolated recovery environment, recovery was the trigger for me. Um, DR, disaster recovery, is different than cyber recovery or, you know, recovering your environment. So to say that, you know, we've implemented a DR solution, customers might think, oh, that'll work for cyber resiliency. But that type of DYI might get you into more trouble, right? Yes. If we're hyper-focused on DR, then we're, we're missing the forest for the trees, right? So then we're thinking about just one application, maybe even one application stack, or maybe even in a slightly better scenario, we're thinking about a suite of applications, but not necessarily keeping the business running. So cyber resiliency is about keeping the entire business open for business, even when the worst thing happens. Now, you mentioned just a minute ago a couple things. First being zero trust, second, the isolated recovery environment. If we, if we drill down into zero trust, okay, let's, let's unpack that here today. So I know that's an odd concept to grasp and really understand. I mean, essentially, when you implement a zero trust approach, you're effectively trusting no one and nothing. And that's really hard to kind of grasp when you think about your employees as assets. You really want to trust them. But in this type of scenario, it's a little bit different. Oh, absolutely. There's there's so many different concepts that are wrapped up in zero trust, but they're they're easy to unpack like one at a time. So there's different ways to approach zero trust, but that idea that Maybe I can trust this person, but I'm not going to imply any further permissions beyond what they're expected to do on a daily basis. Let's add permissions rather than imply permissions. And how does a zero trust framework then help you adapt? So when we think about changing landscape, new threats that come in, and also, I mean, one of the concepts, right, is to become more proactive. Zero trust will allow for us to do that to protect our organization more proactively. Do you have any other thoughts on implementing a zero trust in, framework in an environment such as that? Yeah, absolutely. There's when you're when you're bringing on new people, especially in this with this cybersecurity spend being up so high, a lot of that's going to be additional personnel and you're going to have to expose them to some of the the raw nerves of the of the enterprise, you know, there's going to be a hesitant moment uh, whether you're going to trust this person and then you'll ultimately decide that you do, but do, what do they absolutely need access to and what do they not need access to? We don't want to give the, we don't want to even leave the door unlocked for a bad actor to potentially walk through. There are all different kinds of organization specific goals that are focused around identity access management identity protection, identity, you know, an ID verifier. Um, we're familiar with multi-factor authentication. Uh, there's lots of different ways to do that gatekeeping. <laughs> you, you, you took the thunder right out from under me. I was thinking alphabet soup. You said identity <laughs> management, multi-factor authentication, you know, IAM, MFA, you know, 2FA, et cetera. 
all of those are important, obviously, to, to implement within the zero trust framework. But if you don't mind, I want to go back. In our last podcast, when we were talking about cloud, we really focused on that when we move to the cloud, there is the possibility that there are multiple roles who are coming in and, and protecting the environment. I mean, we, we all need to work together. We have a responsibility to ensure that our information, our company is protected. And so when, when I think about that, plus the accessibility of applications because of cloud, I mean, it's so easy to bring on a new application and maybe IT doesn't really know about that. But I think the one big area that um, we, we might not value as much is in protecting those sign-ons. When we think about threats, yes, malware, you know, opening up an email or, um, you know, some, some other measures certainly are ways in which we can ex experience an attack. But there's also a lot of risk in, in sign-ons of applications. So how would Zero Trust help protect our applications from a sign-on perspective? I would say that when you're implementing like a zero trust framework, that part mm -hmm. of your mindset about this is that you are going to give that user that does have that extra sensitive access, you're going to create that procedure for them where we're going to use a secondary trusted device or means of communication, um, which we've all seen a lot in our, our personal lives. You'll have multi-factor on some of the accounts right, like the doctor's office when I get a message I yeah. log in they're like okay we got to send you a text message oh I got to go find that phone <laughs> and plug in the number oh it's absolutely. frustrating but it's needed right and it's it you see it in your personal life as maybe a small hassle but that the organization that you're doing business with even free services like your your cloud-based email and your cloud-based social aspects aspects they see this as a way to keep your data safe. Verify that you are you through just another device. And we've we've even gotten away from saying 2FA because multi-factor implies that we could come up with 2, 3, 17, or 443 different ways oh, to grief. verify that you're you. Now, for the end user experience, we seem to have been trending more in the single digits, which is wonderful for you and me in our personal lives. Right. But we could think about this in the future that we could go from two factor easily to three. You know, if we're going to assume that you always have your cell phone with you because everybody does, then we can use authentication apps. We can use uh, the method of just say, I'm going to call you at a, tr at a number that should only ring to you. And I'm going to verify that you are you. And that is that extra layer that, you know, that if that were compromised, there would have to be so much additional to compromise such a thing that it does give us that extra security, that extra sense of security, and that extra verifiable step. These all can be verified, they can be logged, they can be tracked, which gives identity providers another aspect, another way to help play that role in the cyber resiliency plan. Now, continuing on this, I just read a new news bite, new to me, the other day about protecting your API secrets. Secrets, <laughs> but as they relate to APIs, right? So of course, <laughs> in the cloud world, APIs are so important. I mean, they, they're almost table stakes when you think about an application and then integrating it to your environment. Um, they're very key, but 
I get the sense they're quickly becoming a necessary evil. Just yet another thing that we really need to be thinking about here in terms of protecting. Um, so when we think about zero trust, it's not just trusting, it's not just not trusting the individual, it's the systems and other things in place. And APIs need to be considered as part of that discussion too, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, your APIs might be delivering a wonderful service for automation, uh, for linking one application with another where that's the only way for them to talk. Um, but consider your API as just another user. This is another asset that needs to be secured. And the wonderful thing in NetBackup is we have API keys, which you can revoke at any time. So the API key becomes only usable by a specific user, but we don't expose that. So it's just another way for the backup administrator to implement that automation that they want without compromising these what you call table stakes for API security. Authorization headers, you know, we're getting into the bit of a geeky realm there, but they're <laughs> exceptionally complex. Um, but in the case of HTTP and HTTPS, there's a big difference. And having the ability to secure that data is, is of course, it's, it's essential to making automation work. So you mentioned, obviously, some of the things, tools, features that we have within NetBackup and our Veritas Alta portfolio. What features, though, do you think that customers, organizations need to do a better job of when, when you think of what they have implemented, what might not be implemented that gives them immediate benefit today well, that they if, could do better? Yeah, absolutely. Picking off the top, I would imagine that there is always room for improvement in the um, storage lifecycle policy topologies. Those have to adapt with the changing storage nature and the environments the, we talk about three, two, one, one, which is our, our three copies in at least two different locations or two different types of media, one of them being offsite and one of them being immutable, which leads to another idea that I would immediately go to. That immutable storage, it doesn't have to be primary and it doesn't necessarily always have to be tertiary. Each environment, each business model will find a different way to use it, but it's always useful somewhere in the SLP topology. And I would say that's just as important as implementing a zero trust framework. And so I just wanted to, for those who are listening here today, I just want to point you to our, our podcast description in the show notes. We've got a couple of different resources talking about fundamentals, just the, the basics of what, uh, uh, what you should be thinking about in terms of zero trust, what um, the framework you should be implementing, as well as a practical example of implementing such a framework. So be sure to check out our podcast description, those show notes for those resources, great resources that Chris and his team have developed. So Chris, I just want to switch gears because you mentioned immutability. And uh, so at the top of the podcast as well, you had mentioned IRE, isolated recovery environment is another uh, consideration. So when we're thinking about recovery, there's this, you know, strange dichotomy out there today. Analysts like IDC will tell you that when they survey organizations on their readiness and preparedness, yeah, 
we're ready. We, we've got everything handled. We're good to go. And, and that's like a, a, a huge number of customers or organizations that say we are prepared. Like 85%, um, I, I believe that they, they say are, are ready to go. But unfortunately, despite that readiness, in the face of an event, only 30% will fully recover. So if you find yourself in a recovery situation, you not only have to worry about where your data is, but I think most importantly, and we hear this quite a bit, that copy, that data, the, the copy of data that you have has to be clean. I mean, there's nothing worse than being faced with an event you're now being charged with having to recover that data and that data is dirty. So having an unchangeable and isolated copy, mutability that you've been talking about really is the ticket, yeah? Oh, absolutely. And th th that whole idea of it being an isolated recovery environment, I mean, the name is saying it all. We, we, we build it for recovery. We don't just think about backup. It's its own place. It's its own environment. And having that isolated nature gives us this wonderful, safe harbor, if just, you know, to borrow a term there, <laughs> somewhere that we know. I think I've heard that term before recently. <laughs> uh, yeah. The idea of it being isolated is, is actually a very key concept. This, we could do data forensics. If we, if we knew that we could close off everything and only allow the traffic in or just pull up all the stakes and say, you know, this is now a, a data forensics lab than an isolated recovery environment. Just with the flip of a switch, I can now do my malware scanning. I can do my, I can run through all of my anomaly history and look for, you know, the point in time where things might've started to slip sideways. Um, as well as just having that sandbox, let's do a test restore of this data and find out really how bad it is perhaps, or my true data forensics folks need the, the original data so they can start pulling it apart and updating virus definitions and all that other fun stuff that comes with that. But in an isolated environment, that's all practical. If it's not built to be isolated, then it's just a recovery environment, which is still very useful and not to be diminished. Well, you had mentioned malware scanning and anomaly detection. You wrote a fabulous white paper on anomaly detection, how to configure it, how the how you can train the engine, ultimately how how data training works. And so for those who are listening, if you want to see what Chris put together and, and feel free, Chris, if you want to mention anything more, but that link is in our show notes as well. I'm very proud of that paper. It was, uh, I will, I will concede that statistical <laughs> regression analysis is not for everyone, but it does get more interesting on the next few pages. No shame there, huh? Um, but you know, but it's actually tangent. You said statistical analysis. Not every, not every organization has a statistician, someone who is trained to be able to adjust those engines and help make AI really work for them and in their business context. Oh, and there's the the, the Nobel Prize award winning math that's behind this is amazing. I mean, you can go learn about data clustering and, and how it's been applied to machine learning. And it's just so wonderfully scalable. I mean, we're using five data points right now. There's opportunities 
for that to grow as the nature of the data protection landscape changes, we can change with that. We can incorporate more data points. We could incorporate less. There's a wonderful, rich amount of data in that backup. There's all this wonderful, there's wonderful diamonds to find in all this data mining <laughs> that you could use not only to detect anomalies, but to help a backup administrator really, you know, have like this insight into their own environment. And it's, it's just right there in the product. You don't have to do anything. And it's turnkey and easy to use. And I think that's what's important. Simple, don't need that PhD degree to, to be able to go in there and tweak it. Um, just bringing us back to IRE, though, isolated recovery environments, um, the manner in which you implement those, um, IREs are not equal from one technology to the next. And the interpretation of how you implement an IRE solution can be vastly different depending upon who you talk to and what technology you're looking at. So for instance, there's the concept of push versus pull. And that that is unique to some of the functionality that we have recently delivered. Do you want to talk oh. a little bit a little bit more about how we differ in that regard? Because that is key. I mean, that 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 gets into what goes into the environment and locks it and secures it. Oh, it's a, and it's a wonderful implementation. What the idea behind push versus pull? There's this. Without getting too technical about firewalls, you have to control, you put who is in control kind of in the spotlight. And by having a, in the nature of an isolated recovery environment, we're still talking about that isolated word. And if we switch to a pull model instead of a push, well, if we're pulling things in to the isolated recovery environment, you know, there's, there's the idea of this, uh, anthropomorphized idea where if we're pulling it, the isolated recovery environment is the one that's in control. And that's how we built it. We gave all the windowing and the network isolation features all live on the isolated side so that those can be, those gates can be closed. Those semi-permeable semi membranes can be tightened or exposed in order to avoid a more shall we say, medieval approach of just, I really don't know, so I'm just going to pull up the drawbridge and lower the portcullis and just kind of hide inside there we my go. castle. I was waiting for it, Chris. <laughs> There's that metaphor. <laughs> and well, it's, 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 not so, it's not so far off. If we're just going to turn the nick off, right, for maybe a different solution, then we can't keep up with our storage lifecycle policy backlog. And now we're going to create our own problem by not having the most current data in the isolated recovery environment. But if I have a, if I know that I can trust, you know, these certain source domains or even these source machines, I can be very, very specific. Then I can allow those to continue and I can even set up different relationships for those as well as just if, if everything's working well, I can leave, I can leave everything open as open as I wish. And if everything is starting to look a little bit suspicious, I even have that control where I can start selectively shutting things down without having to just hide inside the castle. 
Now, one of the other things that we, we haven't really talked about, but I think it does go hand in hand with a couple of these concepts is encryption. And I know that encryption has a couple different parts, but I, I think it's worthwhile just um, maybe touching on the importance of encryption and even how we apply it or how our customers are using it and, where, and, and, and how that's helping them to protect their organization. Sure. When we, th- when we think about encryption, we normally focus on either data at rest. You know, the data is parked somewhere. This would apply to like where we're writing a backup um, or even where the backup data is residing before we back it up. And then we have data in transit encryption. Uh, so these are largely using the similar technologies, but how they're applied is, is where the elegance comes in. You know, um, we can all... S- force the data through an encryption algorithm. But if we want to also consider performance, then, you know, that's where the net backup solutions really start to shine. You know, we'll integrate with lots of different data at rest technologies. Um, Net backup has a KMS engine that can be easily turned on. We're now integrating with eKMS systems that use the, um, uh, the, the shared protocol for, for mm-hmm. KMS systems. And, you know, that will, the more, the, the more that that happens, the more that we'll see the adoption of external KMS or even cloud-based KMS systems, as well as just, you know, thinking back, you know, to tape, right? LTO four, I think is where we started introducing encryption to your tape drives. But the idea of encryption is, just randomize the data and make it so that the keys are also protected. Let's make this, even if someone got in, let's continue to make it difficult. Like if you don't already know, I'm going to give you hurdle after hurdle after hurdle to start breaking down my data. Well, the key, no pun intended, (laughs) to preventing that anyhow, is to set up that isolated recovery environment. And for our listeners here today, we have a couple of resources to share more on our approach for fortifying that perimeter. There's a white paper in the show notes. And then I'd also like to point you to a conversation that we had with another one of our lead PMs, product managers for security, um, a couple months back where we talked about the, the spread of ransomware and how these isolated recovery environments, and quite frankly, our approach, the 3211 that Chris had mentioned, in addition to six steps to resiliency, all of that is covered. So check out those sessions. Chris, I got to stop you here. I can't believe we're already at the end of yet another jam-packed Voice of Veritas session. But before I let you go, I, I do want to know from you, what is one thing that our customers can take away? Because when I, when I think back to the conversation that we've had here today, one of the one of the most impressionable items that I'm taking away is that every business is unique, right? And that even though we may be held um, to different regulations, different standards, and that there's a whole host of technology options out there, including, as you know, DIY, do it, do it yourself. You have to plan. You have to have a plan, and 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 a plan in which allows you to adapt and deploy strategies that best fits your business. It can't, it's not a one size fits all. So that's my key takeaway, but I'd love to hear from you, maybe just one last uh, push here. What, what's one thing that 
companies can and and really ought to be doing today where where they can get a big win in securing their environment? It's hard to it's hard to narrow it down to just one, but if I had to pick, <laughs> I would say just a, one. A plan on a page is nothing if it's never been tested. So that plan needs to be rehearsed. Build scenarios around the worst cases that could happen and actually rehearse them. What would happen? It's going to be messy and everyone's afraid of doing it, but you you will learn. And if you're the one in control, if it's a test, then you already know this is how we're going to constantly improve and constantly develop CICD and get that test to get me a better plan. And then we do that all over again. I couldn't agree more. I mean, to have a plan and not test it is, is, uh, is a waste. I mean, you, you, you have to have a good cyber resiliency plan that incorporates those testing and rehearsing cycles. Well, I have to say what a great session. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for joining me here today and coloring our day with a couple of these great examples. We do invite you to uh, let us know how we're doing. What if any other burning topics we can bring your way. And with that, thank you for listening in and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you.